From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. I think it's safe to say that even non-true crime junkies have likely heard the following names before. Jack the Ripper, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, the Zodiac Killer, and so on. All famous serial killers from various periods in history. But how about the Blackout Ripper? Few would likely be familiar with this particular killer. But what if I told you that back during the height of World War II, there was a killer roaming the streets of London, a phantom stalking his victims amidst the nightly air raid sirens and bomb shelters and rubble. This week, I welcome my guest, author and researcher Simon Reed, to talk all about his book, The Blackout Murders, the shocking true story about the Blackout Ripper. Welcome to this week's mystery, part one of The Blackout Ripper on From the Void. All right. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited this week to have author Simon Reed with me. Thanks for spending some time with me today. John, great to be here. Thanks. Well, you you wrote a book uh, on a topic that is very interesting to me because, uh, like we were talking about before we started recording, I was completely unfamiliar with this case uh, until I, I happened upon it in a documentary. How did you first become aware of this? I actually stumbled across the story completely by accident. So I've always been fascinated by uh, World War II and particularly uh, World War II London with the, the blackout and the bombings and all that. And uh, I received one year as a gift a, a history of uh, crime in wartime London. And I was reading this thing and there was it was a one sentence mention. I mean, it just said uh, it, it, there was a chapter and it was dealing with murders uh, and how hard they were to investigate uh, in the city during the war. And there was one sentence where it talked about Scotland Yard pursuing a serial killer called the Blackout Ripper. And it just said basically that he killed several women in the course of a week and then he was, he was captured because he made a mistake at a crime scene. That's all it said. But the name Blackout Ripper just really grabbed my attention. I was like, Blackout Ripper, what the hell is that? That sounds like really ominous and cool. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, this was about 20 years ago or so. Um, and so uh, I, I went online and I, I dug around and I found, sure enough, uh, some resources about uh, this killer who he, he killed four women in the course of a week. He moved very quickly. Uh, and his crimes were sort of like Jack the Ripper, which is why he got the nickname the Blackout Ripper. But because they happened during the war when there was a lot of other stuff going on, they've never really received the media attention that they probably deserved. And so I realized that there was possibly a story here, not only a story about Scotland Yard's hunt for a serial killer, but also uh, a story about sort of a murder investigation in wartime under very unique circumstances. And that's kind of how the book came about. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, as you said, there's this backdrop of war happening and specifically in London at the time, London is just being bombed into rubble. So, for listeners, talk about kind of set the stage. Like, what was life like in London at that point in time? Sure. Well, you, you sort of nailed it. London is very much a city on the front line. Um, its landscapes has been forever altered by German high explosives and incendiaries. If you were to walk through the city parks back in the time, you'd see air raid trenches uh, crisscrossing the grounds. You'd see uh, anti-aircraft batteries. 
uh, set up. You know, the city's statues have been hidden underneath concrete slabs to prevent bomb damage. Government buildings are surrounded in uh, barbed wire and sandbags. Streets have been blocked off to prevent advancement in the event of a uh, German landing. So the city is very much a uh, war zone. There's uh, rationing going on, not just of uh, food products, but also materials like silks. So silks, uh, you know, women's silk stockings are a hot commodity. So there's a big thriving black market. This, of course, gives rise to uh, sort of crime, theft, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and more importantly to this story is there's a blackout. Every night uh, when the sun sets, the city goes into sort of a, a dark oblivion. No lights are allowed, and obviously this is to thwart German bombers. Uh, and this gives rise to a whole other kind of uh, life. There's a flourishing uh, sort of sex scene in London at night, you know, uh, prostitution is big business because this is a city, like I say, it's on the front line. You have thousands of military men coming in and out of the city uh, every day. So there's a thriving business here. And, uh, you know, a lot of women, their husbands go off uh, to war. So some women go to work in the factories. Other women have to make a living, uh, you know, in other methods. And so prostitution is one thing they turn to. Uh, and I should also say this is a city, too, with a depleted police force. Right, because a lot of the men in Metropolitan Police, they've been called off to war. So Scotland Yard is operating with fewer numbers than normal. And they're also operating uh, under an order of radio silence. They can't use radios to communicate because that can be picked up by German bombers. So it's this unique set of circumstances uh, which kind of allows this killer to sort of thrive, if only for a week. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it is sort of unique in that way where it really, as you said, it really take. he's very you know, prolific in the sense that this, this guy does not take a night off. Like he's, he's out there prowling every single night for a week. He doesn't, John. That's one of the things that really struck me um, when I started researching this. When I, I initially stumbled across the mention of the Blackout Ripper in the book, it said he was sort of active within, uh, within a week. Um, but it didn't really convey sort of the... Um, so the ferocity and the rapidity with which he with which he struck and when you say this guy didn't take a rest you're absolutely right he was out every single uh night doing his thing and it, it has baffled investigators i mean even when you read the police you know the police files they're like this guy is just like you know he's all over the place um and that was really striking to uh investigators and it also sort of adds to the mystery uh which will will I'm sure we'll talk about because um, prior to him committing these acts, there was nothing in his character to suggest that he had this bloodlust. And we'll talk about, you know, I'm sure the killer going forward, but uh, yeah, he seemed to be overwhelmed out of nowhere with this need for blood or to kill or whatever you want to call it. And he acted on it and he didn't stop until he was caught. Yeah, it is very interesting, and I, I definitely uh, want to dig into the the psychology aspect of it. Um, you know, before we do that, though, I think you know to set the stage a little bit more, and just in terms of what life was like specifically for women, this is a very dangerous time, especially if you were a single woman uh, during wartime. Talk about that a little bit. Well, it was, it was a hard time for women. Obviously, um, you know, this is a period when men are the uh, primary uh, breadwinners. Right, and the women stay home and sort of raise the kids. And now uh, the husbands have gone off to uh, war or gone off to uh, partake in the war effort in some regard. And so women are left alone to uh, fend for themselves. And so, like I said, some of them do go into the factories to uh, 
sort of make ends meet. Obviously, uh, women make up the primary workforce during wartime in the factories, turning out turning out planes, tanks, munitions, whatnot. But a lot of them um, turn to the streets uh, to make money. And prostitution in wartime London, uh, it wasn't legal, but it was it was accepted. Uh, it was just considered a part of uh, part of life. And it was obviously um, very dangerous. It put the women at, uh, at, at great risk because you're dealing with a clientele who come into the city uh, on a transport train or a ship. They're there for a couple of days, and then maybe they commit a crime, and then they're off on a battlefield somewhere. You know, they're not going to be captured. And so um, it, you, you've got this constantly evolving suspect pool. Um, the other thing is they're operating in total darkness. They're operating at night. You know, this is not a city with wallet areas at nighttime. The whole city is like pitch black. And the way they'd attract business back in those days is they'd stand in a doorway or on a street corner and they'd have little flashlights and they'd shine the flashlights down at their ankles. And that was kind of an indication that they were available. And then um, if you were interested, you'd go up and you'd, and you'd name their price. And um, American GIs, they used to have a quote, they'd go up to uh, you know, these London prostitutes, they'd ask for a price, the, the lady would give their price. And the Americans uh, were prone to say, you know, when they'd hear the price, if it was too expensive for them, they'd say, honey, I want to rent it, not buy it. Um, and so, you know, you'd haggle. And then they'd go off and, you know, some of the women had uh, rooms they'd go to, um, some of these women had like homes where they lived and then they maintained rooms where they'd go to conduct business. So someone would take their, uh, customers back to, uh, you know, a room to conduct business. Others would use air raid shelters. Um, I mentioned sort of the air raid trenches dug through the parks. Those were a frequent, uh, place to, uh, conduct illicit business. Um, but it obviously was, uh, it was not safe. It was dangerous. And there were obviously, uh, incidents of women being assaulted and, uh, murdered. Um, talk about the victims a little bit, because, you know, as you said, there is sort of that common thread amongst all of them where um, and they really are a diverse uh, group of, of women. They, they are. They are. And um, there are uh, four murder victims. Three of them are uh, are prostitutes. One of them isn't. Um, the first one is uh, Evelyn Hamilton. Um, she has just arrived in the city. She, she's in the city for like two days or so before she's murdered. She's actually uh, a chemist by trade. She uh, graduated uh, in 1938 from the University of Edinburgh with a degree in chemistry. And she'd worked uh, in a number of uh, uh, chemists or, you know, as we call them here in the States, pharmacies. Um, but she was not a happy person. You know, she didn't have a husband. She didn't have a family. She felt something was missing. She'd actually come down to London to try and sort of find some sort of uh, meaningful life. Um, she was a lonely individual. She was staying in a boarding house. She went out for dinner one night shortly after her arrival in the city and then runs into this individual and uh, is ended up found in, a, uh, found in an air raid shelter. Um, the next victim is a young lady named uh, Evelyn Oatley. She also went by the name Lita Ward. She is, uh, when I was researching the book, I thought she was one of the saddest cases because she, she was married to a pig farmer in the uh, town of Blackpool, but the rural life wasn't for her. She, she got married in 1936 and realized that being a farmer's wife isn't what she wanted. She always wanted to be an actress, you know, a, a star of the stage. And so she'd come down to London to try and find uh, stardom. That obviously didn't work out. War breaks out. Uh, she ends up as a topless dancer at a place called the Windmill Theater 
in Soho, which was famous for its topless review. This in turn leads to uh, her sort of, you know, working, working the streets. And she is, she's very lonely. She actually, uh, she tells friends she's lonely. She tells her husband she's lonely. Her husband knows what she does for a living. And he remains loyal to her and says, I love you. You know, please come back to Blackpool, come back to the pig farm. She doesn't want to do that. Um, and so she sort of turns to prostitution, not only for money, but also for uh, sort of companionship in a weird way. And then it's just her misfortune that she runs into the blackout ripper and ends up um, the way she ends up. Um, the next victim is <laughs> the next victim is okay, Margaret. Margaret. Lowe. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. The next, <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of them. Uh, the next victim is Margaret Lowe. Uh, her story, all these women, all, all their stories are tragic, by the way. When I say Evanoli, like struck me as the saddest. That's not to say I didn't find the other sad. They're, they're all sad uh, in their own way. Uh, Margaret Lowe is the next victim. She uh, is a single mother. She has a 15-year-old um, daughter uh, named Barbara. And uh, she has tried to make ends meet in various ways. She's, uh, she ran a shop. She ran a boarding house. None of that worked out. She sends her daughter, Barbara, off to boarding school, and um, she turns to uh, prostitution. She's a very regal lady. She's very upper class, wears uh, sort of, you know, very fancy dresses and coats. And she earns herself the nickname on the streets, The Lady, because of her very uh, regal manner. She doesn't take, uh, you know, she doesn't take gruff from, uh, from anyone. And um, she uh, brings men home to uh, her apartment. She does have a history of being roughed up a couple of times. Neighbors tell the police that uh, just recently she's been assaulted by a Canadian soldier. But that doesn't stop her from plying her trade. And she ends up bringing the blackout ripper home to her apartment. Obviously, he does his thing. She's not found for a couple of days. What actually uh, happens is uh, a delivery man leaves a package outside her door. And it stays there for a couple of days. Um, and that's what alerts the neighbors to what's happened inside. What, what the, the sad thing is, the body's discovered when the daughter, Barbara, comes from boarding school to visit uh, the mom. So that's a really tragic circumstance. And then the last victim, or the last murder victim, is a woman named Doris. And I'm going to probably butcher her last name, but it's pronounced Jano, I would say. I don't know if you have any ideas. <laughs> like, I was, was going to ask you. I was like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it's terrible when you write these things and then there's a name you don't know how to pronounce it and you have to say it out loud. Um, but I think it's pronounced, you know, she is the uh, wife of an elderly hotel manager and he knows full well what she does for a living. She makes no secret of hiding it from him. And, um, you know, he, he works during the nights. He comes home during the day. She prepares his dinner. He has it. He kisses her goodbye. He goes off to work, and she goes out onto the streets. He keeps hoping that maybe she'll find a, uh, a different uh, path, pursue a different career. But, you know, she enjoys her work. And so uh, she t- goes out one night and obviously brings the Ripper home and uh, meets with fatal consequences there. So, you know, all the women have their own uh, stories. And that's one of the things, uh, John, you know, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, when I was, when I was writing the book, sometimes when you, you read these serial killer books, the sort of the, the star, for lack of a better word, is, is the serial killer. Um, you know, with this book, I, I very much wanted to try and get as much information as I could on the victims because they are human. 
um, you know, their mothers, their, their wives, um, and they have, they have stories to be told and, you know, learning about them, it really, it drives home the, the tragedy. These aren't faceless entities. These aren't bad people. Uh, they were women who ran into the wrong person at the wrong time. And I wanted to sort of get that across. Yeah. And so many of them were, were literally in situations where it, they were just trying to survive, you know, like the, the one that comes to mind also is, uh, uh, I believe it was Doris you were just talking about, or I'm sorry, no, um, was it Margaret Lowe, the, the lady known as the lady? Yeah, yeah. Where she's trying to get her daughter through school and her daughter yeah. doesn't even know. And so she, I think they said every third weekend she would come home to visit. She comes home, she exactly. Life is, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, and it's, it's sad and it shows you sort of the struggle these women were going through. And, you know, they're no different than you and I. They got families they need to provide for them. They got children they're worried about, want to provide the best they can for. And they're doing what they can, um, you know, under under the circumstances. So it was, it was a tough life. And, um, you know, it's sad that uh, things sort of turned out the way it did. But that was something I very much wanted to get across in the book is that these women are, you know, doing the best they can under incredibly trying circumstances. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately they suffered for it. So let's, let's get into talking about the, uh, the killer himself. So it was ended up, uh, they, they, they find, uh, this, this guy who is a, um, just like so many serial killers, sort of, um, a little bit of an ego there. Uh, yeah. but very charming. He's a good looking guy. I saw pictures of him. I was like, okay. he's handsome. Yeah. He's a handsome guy. His name is Gordon Cummins. Yeah. And, uh, and as with a lot of serial killers with that, that bit of the ego overinflated ego, he also sort of like pumps up his sort of backstory in a way. He does. Yeah. Gordon Frederick Cummins. He's, uh, he's 28 and, and these killings, by the way, just for your listeners, they take place in uh, a one week span in February, 1942. So he's 28 years old, uh, at the time of the killings. And he's, he's a fascinating character. He's also a, um, He's a frustrating character, and I'll, uh, and I'll explain why. So what we do know about him is he's 28 at the time of the killings. He comes from a, comes from a good family. His father's a school superintendent. You know, he has a brother who's serving on submarines in the Royal Navy. Uh, Gordon himself is well-educated. He went to a, a technical school and uh, you know, graduated from there. And then from, uh, after, he go, after he leaves school and he starts bouncing around the workplace, you start seeing kind of this flaw in his character. He, He's not a very honest person. He, you know, he, he steals from work. He, he's, a, he's a womanizer. He's a ruthless uh, womanizer, flirts with everyone, sleeps with everyone he can. He actually loses one job uh, because of his womanizing ways and, and flirting with uh, the female staff at work. Um, and so he, he definitely has a, a love for the ladies. And in 1936, he, he meets a uh, theater secretary um, named Marjorie, who he marries. And she has no idea sort of what kind of character um, she's marrying. And even though he's married, he still carries on his, uh, his you know, womanizing ways. He's called up uh, into the service in 1941. He joins the Royal Air Force and he trains to be a pilot. And this really fits in with his ego. Like you said, he said, he's a very egotistical person. You know, he loves the uh, sort of the power that comes from wearing the uniform he loves the attention the uniform gives him. Obviously, you know, the ladies like the RAF uniform. So when he hits the city pubs at night and they're fawning over him, he loves it. 
he does inflate his background, like you said. In fact, and sort of to the detriment of his relationships with like sort of the other guys in his barracks. And he's stationed in a barracks in Regent's Park in London. And they start calling him the Duke because he talks with a very uh, affected English accent. You know, he starts on with a very sort of uh, posh, kind of like Downton Abbey type accent. And, you know, he says he's descended from uh, a Duke and he's from this rich family. And none of it's true, but he just uses this to sort of, you know, impress the uh, impress people, particularly uh, women. And he uses this to his advantage. Women find him very charming. He's incredibly handsome, which is why, you know, sort of some, some of these women who he approaches feel comfortable taking him, uh, you know, to their, uh, their apartment at night. But what's frustrating about him is, despite his womanizing ways, you know, he has a history of theft and stealing. He's gotten in trouble at various places for that. There's nothing violent in his history. Uh, and so the, the sort of the killings that occur kind of just, they come out from nowhere. And one of the complaints I actually received from readers, I should say, full transparency, you know, after the book came out was I got a lot of emails from readers going, you never told us why he did this. It's like we we don't know <laughs> why why he did it. No one knows why he did what he did. This is one of the frustrating mysteries about the Blackout Ripper. You know, we we don't have. There's nothing in his history. It took his family by surprise. It took his wife by surprise. Um, but yeah, very charming, very egotistical, sort of kind of <clears throat> almost like a Ted Bundy type, really. If you think about it, you know, he sort of like fits into that uh, fits into that template. Yeah, it's very very interesting. Um... Just you know, a lot of a lot of serial killers we know now, based on you know serial killer psychology, is there's some, usually some sort of ramp up period where they kind of commit their first crime. It's kind of clunky. They figure out their mo. He sort of just dives headfirst into it. He he dives headfirst into it. It's interesting though. You mentioned like sort of you know the clunky first crime or whatnot because although we've got these four killings on record, which are uh, sort of, quote unquote, you know, canon killings, official killings of the Blackout Ripper. There are several uh, crimes around this time which were not solved, which may he may have been responsible for. Um, one of them was, prior to the string of serial murders that the book focuses on, uh, a, a girl was found strangled in a uh, bomb-damaged building. Um, the person who strangled her uh, was left-handed. The Blackout Ripper was also left-handed. So they think that maybe she might have been uh, an early victim. When I wrote the book, I actually didn't know about that case. I found out about it after. I was like, shit. I, <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, I missed and one. Then, and I missed one. And then, um, the, and then uh, a case I just mentioned in the book is at one point he's stationed in, uh, I believe it's Wiltshire, and uh, there is an attack on a woman in a town in Wiltshire near where he's stationed, where uh, an airman stepped out of the shadows one night and started strangling this woman. But she escaped, but they never were able to identify who her assailant was. And they think that now maybe that was, um, that was him. Oh, interesting. So, so, yeah. so there does seem to be pot- potential that there was some sort of escalation. Yeah, typically yeah, yeah. So... Um, Let's talk about so ne- February eighth, nineteen forty two. He's uh, he's posted to the R- RAF unit based in uh, London's Regent Park. And again, we you kind of talked about um, Evelyn Hamilton, his first his first victim. Now, my understanding is that you know he heads out into the town. He tells his wife at the time that he's 
going to the West End for a night. That's, uh, that's terrible. He actually visits his wife beforehand, and uh, he says to her, he goes, hey, I'm kind of hard up on uh, cash. Can you, can you give me some money? And she, like, gives him money to, like, go out. And then he hits up, you know, he hits up the town and uh, <laughs> ends up killing someone. Yeah, it's, uh, and she's, she's oblivious to it. But, yeah, uh, he – so on February 8th, he's, he's got leave that night. And so the first thing he does is he goes, visits his wife, asks her for a loan. She gives him money. And then he goes to the West End. You know, we're, we're talking about Soho here. So, you know, if you're familiar with London Piccadilly Circus, you know, Oxford Street, that kind of area, Marble Arch, um, you know, bustling nightlife, a lot of bars, uh, a lot of clubs, um, a lot of uh, working ladies, you know, apply their trade, uh, apply their trade there. It's very popular with uh, military um, personnel. And he goes there and, you know, he gets drunk and, you know, he's hanging out with some friends. Um, at some point he separates from uh, the crowd he's with. And we don't know how or where, but at some point he crosses paths with uh, the first victim, Evelyn Hamilton, who police later determine is probably returning home from dinner. Um, they, they, they determine this because when they do the autopsy, she has food in her stomach, uh, including uh, um, beets. And so from that, they actually start canvassing the restaurants in the area, finding out which restaurants serve beets that night. Uh, and they find uh, a place called, um, oh, I think it's called Lion's Corner House, which was a big multi-story um, restaurant on Oxford Street. It's now a department store. But uh, they, find, uh, they find a waiter who said, oh, yeah, that woman – Ate there, and they they managed to pinpoint the time. So they think that he probably crossed paths with her uh, while she was walking home. She wasn't a prostitute, so how she ended up in the air raid shelter, it, he probably dragged her in there. Um, her shoes showed signs of scraping and um, and uh, scuff marks on there. Um, he didn't, unlike the other victims, he didn't sexually assault her. He he strangled her with a uh, with a stocking. And when police find her, she's actually found the next morning on February 9th. She's found by two electricians who are going to work. They see a, uh, a, a blackout lantern sitting on the air raid shelter, and they go and look in the shelter, and they find poor Evelyn Hamilton lying there. She does have her skirt bunched up around her, but she hasn't been assaulted. She has a stocking tied around her neck. Um, she's got a scarf over her face. The killer has taken her two gloves and placed them uh, on her chest, palms up with fingers pointing towards her face, which is some, Police don't explain why they did this, but it's sort of some weird. It does come across as some like weird ritualistic thing, um, but and he does at other crime scenes kind of arrange things a certain way. Um, she has uh, money's been taken from her handbag. They later determine, so they think the uh, the, the the motive might be um, theft, but they're they're not sure. But there's nothing obviously in that first killing to suggest what's what's about to happen. Yeah, he yeah, as you say, he really ramps up uh, with the second victim, Evelyn Oatley, um, and she's found less than a mile from her flat again in Soho. Uh, talk about how he really again ramped up and and took it he, to the next level. Yeah, so with Evelyn Oatley, this is where you really start seeing the Ripper aspects of the crimes um, come into play. So uh, Evelyn Oatley, she goes out, she's seen at a pub. Um, 
like 10 o'clock at night having pints. And then she comes home, I think it's shortly before midnight or or just after midnight, whatever. She comes home. She's seen uh, a neighbor sees her coming up the stairs with a man. He's got a trench coat on. He's got the collar turned. It's very noirish. You know, he's got the collar turned up, hiding his face. And um, she, the living arrangement for Evelyn Oatley is unique. She shared, her apartment is actually one apartment split into two by a series of folding doors. And um, so on one side of the folding doors is Evelyn. On the other side of the folding doors is her neighbor. Uh, I think that her name was Cecilia. And Cecilia is friends with Evelyn. She's used to Evelyn bringing men home. What Evelyn would do was she'd come home. She'd go into her side of the folding doors. She'd turn on the radio, the BBC late night broadcast, she'd play it loud. So the noise of what was happening on the other side of the door, Celia couldn't hear it. So on this night, uh, you know, night of um, February uh, 9th, um, she uh, brings home a gentleman, goes behind her folding door. She turns up the radio. The radio's turned up louder than normal, Cecilia notices, but she doesn't think anything of it. And it plays a lot longer than normal, which kind of gets on Celia's nerves, but she doesn't say anything about it. And then, you know, a couple of hours later, the radio goes silent. She hears footsteps descending down the stairs, the door to the street open and close. And then, you know, whoever it is disappears into the night. Um, on the morning of the 10th, uh, meter readers come to the building to read the meters. Another aspect sort of of life this time, you know, a lot of these apartments, if you wanted to turn the lights on, you had to stick a coin in, in a meter and then turn the meter and that would turn the lights on in your apartment. And then uh, sort of the electric company, the meter men would come, empty the coins out of the meter and go on the way. So the meter men show up that morning to uh, read the meters and collect on them. And they, this is like shortly after eight o'clock in the morning, they go in to uh, Evelyn Oatley's apartment and the blackout curtains are drawn, but they see Evelyn. She's lying diagonally across the bed. Her head's kind of hanging over the edge of the bed. Her throat's been slit. Um, you know, sort of a very deep gash across the throat and blood has sort of dripped from the artery down onto the floor, and it's created like a river across the um, across the floor. And someone asked me once, how do you know these details? Like, how do you know blood formed a river across the floor? When you read the case files, uh, the Scotland Yard case files, they are very descriptive. It's almost like reading a, a detective novel in themselves. It makes for fascinating reading. They, they go into sort of everything. Um, and it can make for a very gory uh, reading. But she's she's on the bed. She's there's there's blood pooling across the floor. Her throat's been gashed. Um, she's been uh, sort of stabbed in the genital areas with what looks like a uh, a tin opener. There's a there's a bloody tin opener between her legs. She's also been uh, violated with a um, with a flashlight. Um, so this is a big ramp up from where she. Um, you know, from, from what happened to, uh, Evelyn, uh, Evelyn Hamilton. And, um, the reason for this, it's speculated is because whereas Evelyn Hamilton was killed out in the open in an air raid shelter where someone theoretically could walk in off the street and stumble across what was happening here in, uh, you know, Evelyn Oatley's apartment, he has the place to himself. He's got the radio, um, you know, concealing the noise and he can, he can do what he wants. And by the sound, by, by judging from how long the radio was playing, he was in there for a long time. So he really had time to kind of sort of do his thing, but it is, it is an incredible escalation from sort of the murder the night before.
Thanks for listening to this week's mystery. If you like what we're doing here, please consider leaving a review, giving us a five-star rating, and sharing with a friend. It helps us independent podcasts get noticed. We'll be back next week with the second half of my interview with Simon Reed. So until then, thanks for listening to From the Void. From the Void.